Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I have the pleasure of sitting down with Jim O'Shaughnessy, Chairman and Co-Chief Investment Officer of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, otherwise known as OSAN. Jim is a pioneer in the quantitative investing space. He has written multiple investment books, including What Works on Wall Street, and has spent over 25 years in the development of systematic stock investment strategies that work best over time. In this interview, we talk about a wide range of topics, including systematic value investing, emotions and investor behavior, how Jim thinks about evolving quantitative investment strategies and continuous learning, and the details around how those adjustments can be integrated into the investment process at OSAN. We conclude by asking Jim some non-related investing questions, including his views on parenting and the potential pluses and minuses of working from home. I really think you'll enjoy this interview and Jim's ability to expand and go deep on many of the topics. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Jim, thanks so much for jumping on with us today. We are really looking forward to this discussion. Well, as, as am I, Justin. Thank you. As you know, um, we run um, a few models on Validia based on your research and the strategies that you outlined and what works on Wall Street. We are um, huge admirers of what you've built at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, the investment strategies you run, the research you guys put out, and just your overall investing philosophy and how you've educated investors over the years. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So that learning is going to continue today. We're, we're sure of that. We're going to learn today. <laughs> <laughs> to start, I wanted to um, just rewind the clock for you and highlight a research piece that you put out 11 years ago. The title of that was Change Your Focus, Change Your Future. And in it, you looked at the returns in the market over 10 and 20 year rolling time periods. And at the time, which as you remember, we were at the depths of the great financial crisis. This was January of 09. And you wrote the following in that piece. You said, I urge you to do as I have done. And these are the facts. Not investing in the face of an ennobled future is a decision, but, a, but it is a bad one. Letting yourself get overpowered by what has been happening recently will rob you of returns well into the future. Let history serve as your guide and remain committed to equities and using time-tested strategies. You went on to say stocks are cheaper than they have been in a generation, and uh, yet most have lacked the fortitude to make the leap into the market. If history is any indicator, those that do will be richly rewarded. And um, just a few other facts. So from 2000 to 2019, the market returned an annual return of 6.6% a year. From 2000 to 2009, the market returned a negative 1% a year, but from 2009, which is when you wrote the piece, to 2019, stocks have returned 14.5% a year. This is using the S&P 500. So you were very right. Um, you know, this isn't a podcast about making predictions and forecasts, but I just wanted you to talk about the central idea you were getting at there because I, I think there's a lot of timeless lessons in that piece. And then if you're in a position to, you know, as you think about the last decade for stocks, what you think, what the data might show, what the evidence might show for the next 10 years. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, I also followed that piece up with one called a generational buying opportunity in March of 09. 
Uh, we had started buying uh, in December of 08 uh, aggressively. And, and by that, I mean, it's not like we have this huge amount of money on the sidelines, right? Our normal process is to invest uh, up to a certain percentage, right? And, and uh, get it to target asset allocation. Uh, but um, really just the simple need to continue to rebalance to target allocation, right? I, that's a simple trick that investors can use, right? If you're doing 60-40, 60% uh, stocks, 40% bonds. Well, what you would have found during the financial crisis was your 60% stocks had declined to 40% stocks. If you had simply rebalanced, you would have been uh, letting your rebalancing do your investing timing for you. Um, but I think that what that piece and the piece you uh, read from really uh, addresses is still very true today, unfortunately. Um, you know, we're 11 years on and we still let our emotions about what's happening right now uh, impact us in a way that is very destructive, usually, uh, for people's uh, performance over long periods of time. And destructive because when emotions get involved is usually at two times, right? They get involved when things are really, really bad. And what we do is we forecast whatever is happening then all the way to the future, right? And that becomes our, our vision for what's going to be. Well, that's called recency bias. It's built into our minds and brains and less, even knowing about it, we still are guilty of it, right? So people often sell uh, very close to at or near a market bottom. On the other side, when people get giddy, and market returns are incredible, their emotions kick in then too, and they get incredibly greedy, right? Um, you know, there, there, there's been a lot of people saying recently, oh, well, look, all these Robinhood traders and, and all these various people, they're gonna get burned. Yeah, probably. But hopefully they'll learn a lesson that's less about, you know, buy anything because somebody told you to, and, and more a lesson of, Wow, um, because the, uh, the target uh, demographic there are young people, right? And so I, on balance, I think that young people understanding the market is where they need to be if they want to compound their savings with any kind of real rate of return, then, you know, yeah, don't follow gurus or whatever. But if you discover the market, get burned, learn a lesson, but continue in the market, then that's very good. If you get burned and you swear, you know, I'll never go into the stock market again, that's very bad, right? Because history is really the only guide we have. And, you know, during this crisis, people have asked me, well, really, isn't it different this time? And, and you know, obviously the, the events and, and what's going on, they're always different. What isn't different is the way human beings respond to them. Right. So um, I think that the message for right now is the message we've always had, which is if, if you want to build your long term savings, uh, the United States stock market and stock markets globally um, are the place to do that. And that's been true for as long as um, I've been able to look at history. And, you know, we have 
my co-host on, on my podcast called Infinite Loops is Jamie Catherwood, very young guy, but he's a financial historian. And, you know, I said to him, Jamie, can you find me any example where somebody who just invested in stocks for a long period of time, right, that it didn't work out for them like 20 years after? And he came back and he was like, yeah, Russia after the revolution <laughs> um, and, 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 and Germany, but only if they sold, right? Uh, Germany got wiped out, right? And I'm like, okay, so Russian revolution, communists take over. I understand that that's gonna be bad for a capitalist stock market system. Uh, Germany got rebuilt by the Marshall Plan. Uh, but other than that, you know, then you always hear, well, now do, do Japan, okay. Japan, also a, a kind of a special case given the size of that bubble, but I, you know, run comparisons to uh, what they would have received from real estate, not so good, right? So a diversified global equity portfolio is still the champion for the long-term saver and investor, you know, full stop. You know, just I think um, that leads great into the next question I want to ask you. And it's sort of around this con, you know, the idea that it's different this time, but specifically with the struggles of systematic value investing over the last decade, let's say, um, you know, it's not like we haven't seen this um, in history because Chris Meredith, your CIO, wrote a paper, Value is Dead, Long Low Value, where he actually identified another very long term period, I think maybe 15 years, where value stocks you know, generally underperformed. Um, but what we really wanted to sort of just ask you and try to get at with you is there are some people and smart people. Um, I mean, Jeremy Grantham was just on Patrick's podcast making the argument that, you know, these traditional, you know, value metrics and ways to value stocks um, like they used, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, they may not work anymore. And then there's other arguments that maybe technology has broken sort of value investing or the Fed policy and interest rates. So, I mean, what we wanted just to ask you and get your thoughts on are, do, do any of those have any merit to you or, you know, what is the question, the long-term viability of systematic value investing? How do you think about that? Yeah, great question. And, uh, you know, in the case of Jeremy Grantham on Patrick's podcast, I, I think uh, his message was more, he's become a fan of venture capital, uh, which is in fact a different uh, category. So, you know, I understand uh, with somebody in his position, right, uh, where you have a lot of excess capital, uh, venture capital uh, is a good alternate uh, asset class. We do it as well. Um, and we advocate if you can, you should, uh, because uh, it's, uh, it's a big uh, and good diversifier of investments. Uh, you know, I had Michael Green on my podcast where he made a very uh, uh, cogent argument for it's the underlying structure of markets that has changed so dramatically with target date funds and index funds buying and not caring about valuation, right? And that they're kind of eating the market and destroying price discovery. Um, so that's something you need to think about. I have some thoughts on it. Um, and then finally, this idea about the Fed, right? And so first to Michael's argument, I think he's right in many circumstances, but I do not think that ultimately price discovery goes away. Uh, events being the way they are, at some point, 
people are, you know, if you're walking along uh, Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and you see a $20 bill, maybe you don't bend down and pick it up the first time. Maybe you're in a hurry, maybe you're going somewhere else or someone is distracting you. Uh, then you see another one. Well, again, maybe you're really deep into that conversation with your friend and you don't bend down to pick it up. But ultimately, if you keep seeing basically free money lying there, you're going to say, I got to check this out. And I kind of think that's the way it is with these really undervalued stocks, right? You can buy uh, uh, an incredible collection of stocks right now at insanely low prices. Uh, the prospects for their business haven't changed materially. Uh, they are high quality companies, et cetera. My point is that in a market as liquid and big as the US market and other global markets, eventually people say, hey, wait a minute. It reminds me a lot of uh, the dot-com era, right? And I wrote a piece called The Internet Contrarian in, in April of 99, I was a year early. But people were making the craziest arguments for why AOL was worth, I can't even remember what it was, a thousand times earnings or whatever it was. And this is another really good example of the temporal nature, uh, nature of decision-making. By that I mean, right now, you know, it's June 2020, and we are being bombarded with all sorts of information about the market, about COVID, about riots about everything and we tend to time weight our decision making to the information we're looking at right now um, so that eventually goes away and eventually you get people a big enough group of people saying wow um, those small cap value stocks if i ignore that they've done horribly over the last 10 years and they have uh, but eventually, uh, like Chris's paper pointed out, people say, this is crazy. Why should I be willing to pay a dollar for, you know, uh, uh, a huge uh, price to earnings ratio when I can buy 50 uh, cents on the dollar? I'm going to do that. So ultimately, we think unless the, the rules and laws of economics go away, that systematic value will again come back, usually after its last diehard adherent uh, uh, throws in the towel. Well, unless I die, I'm not throwing the <laughs> towel in. So, uh, and I don't think Patrick would either. Finally, to the Fed. So this is an interesting uh, question because the Fed has been intervening in markets with varying success since it was founded in the early part of the 20th century. Um, a lot of people make the argument that the Fed caused, in large part, the Great Depression of the 30s by constricting and contracting the money supply. Um, and there are some merits to those arguments. Um, and a lot of people right now are making the argument that uh, QE, limitless QE, uh, is going to have inflationary impact, et cetera. I definitely think that at some point in the future, we're going to start seeing the downsides to the Fed flooding the system with liquidity, right? And, and when that happens, you'll see inflation, you'll see all those kinds of things start kicking in. 
And my point is, I don't know when that's going to be. Um, and that, yes, what the Fed has done has definitely saved risk markets and, you know, arguably avoided a depression of uh, a magnitude probably similar to the one that we faced in the 30s, right? So I'm certainly not an anti-Fed type person, right? I think that they ultimately, if they hadn't done what they were doing, uh, things would have been a lot worse. Now, I think that, and hope, that the Federal Reserve's Operating Committee and its chair will realize that this can't go on to infinity because then really bad things start to happen, like hyperinflation. And you you don't have to do too much of a a search to find out what happened during the great inflations of Weimar Germany, uh, Zimbabwe, et cetera. But again, there, who did the best? Well, the people who did the best were people who were invested in real assets, right? Like real estate, uh, metals, et cetera, but also stocks, right? Part, part, part ownership in a company with earnings. Um, so m- my answer to the Fed is it's a very interesting situation that we haven't seen this kind of data for. I would speculate that what we've seen from the past will eventually, unless they change course, lead to some pretty bad inflation. It hasn't happened yet. And so I'm the first to say that, you know, that, that money needs to get in the system, right, for, to inflation, to, for that to really matter. But you are seeing inflation in things that matter, right? You, I mean, look at the cost of an education and compare that to what a flat screen TV costs you. I mean, there's been varying amounts of inflation in things that, that people need, and, and some very high, like education, some very low, like the computer I'm talking to you on right now. Uh, but so, look, human beings, our nature hasn't changed. The, the fundamental rules of economics haven't changed. Uh, this is an interesting uh, period, and, it, you know, I, I, I don't mean to sound, you know, uh, like it doesn't matter because it does, but I'm very excited about this new data set, right? <laughs> so that uh, in my grandson and granddaughter can look back and say, oh yeah, look what happened then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but my guess is that what happened then is 20 years later, people who had invested uh, rather than hoarded their uh, savings will have done demonstrably better than those who haven't. I just want to ask you one more follow-up on the struggles of value. Um, the, the most popular narrative these days about why value has struggled in the past decade is, is really one that's a function of interest rates. And so people look at low interest rates, they say, all right, a company is the present value of its future cash flow is discounted to the present. The discounts rates lower, therefore value has to struggle relative to growth. Value stocks are worth less. And I think you guys have looked at this and you've maybe found that that may not necessarily be the case. Value may not always struggle in periods of low interest rates. So I was wondering if you could talk about that for a second. Sure. Um, I I would refer you to our website where there's a really great paper on this. Um, And uh, Jesse Livermore, one of our OSAM research associates, uh, and Patrick uh, uh, took a look at how growth versus value stocks get priced, right? And, and what we found is that, in, in, for the most part, uh, investors overshoot on both growth and value. 
And what happens with value is, yeah, they were right to <clears throat> price them down because they did, in fact, have horrible earnings, uh, but they revert it to mean, right? And then you saw an expansion of the P-E ratio um, and, and other valuation metrics. So, yeah, um, it, it, uh, it, it, on the face of it, makes sense, right, that lower uh, cost of capital is going to benefit uh, a growth-oriented company more than a value-oriented company. But ultimately, as we find in the paper and as I'm saying right now, these things work their way out of the system, and then you get to a point where the spreads between value and growth. The most recent paper uh, Chris, uh, Jamie, and Travis wrote um, on, on uh, small cap value in particular uh, finds that we have not seen spreads like this ever. And the last time we saw spreads that were directionally similar in terms of value versus growth, value went on to a multi-year outperformance of uh, growth. Uh, we expect that'll happen this time too, but let's also not try to, to say only buy value, <laughs> right? So we believe that we obviously deeply believe in systematic value, but we really deeply believe in systematic investing. It doesn't mean that we say you can't buy growth stocks. We have some strategies that do buy uh, growth stocks. We found that momentum is a better way to look at those than say earnings or the traditional metrics. But we find that the, the value, the, the biggest piece of value here is in the systematic part. Right? Because if you systematically buy on the value side very cheap companies or on, on the uh, growth side companies with reasonable valuation metrics but also good momentum and do so consistently and persistently, that's where you see the returns start kicking in. So is now a particularly interesting period for um, value and in particular small cap value? Yeah, I think so. Right. And so I will adjust my own allocation to public equities to overweight that, to take advantage of that. But, but please, I don't want anyone listening or watching this to think, oh, you know, Shaughnessy said the only thing you can put your money in is small cap value. No, no, no. We love it. We think its prospects are better and for, you know, very empirical reasons, right? But it's fine to have an overall balanced portfolio. And, and that would include some allocation to growth. I, you know, we have never been just, I am a deep value investor. O'Shaughnessy has always been more about the systematic part because look, we, in what works on Wall Street, one of the best uh, factors we found was price momentum, right? Going all the way back to 1927, I think it was, price momentum has worked very, very well. So we're empiricists. We're not uh, polemicists, right? We, 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 there's not one true faith that we say, this is it, and they, we're doctrinaire about it. And if there was, I guess it would be short circuit your emotions, be systematic, and you're going to do fine. Uh, but right now, the, the nuanced answer is the spreads are as wide as we've ever seen them. If you don't have any allocation to small cap value, which I would believe is probably true of a lot of your listeners and, and people that are watching this, get some. Pretty simple message. 
I wanted to touch a little bit on behavior because you, you just you spoke about that a couple times in your answer. And one of the tendencies all of us have who build these quant strategies is to want to build, you know, the highest factor loaded strategy, the strategy that produces the best return over the long term. And then as you do it, you realize, wait a second, like I'm putting people in this and they're having a really hard time sticking with it. And I'm, I'm wondering how you strike that balance, because on one side, you have this highly loaded factor strategy. And on the other side, you have maybe the S&P 500 slightly reweighted. Re and you know, how do you find the space in the middle where you can have the strategy that has the factor loadings, but people can also stick with it? That is such a, a timely question, uh, because uh, we have found uh, over the last uh, 10 years, really kind of since when we started O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, uh, we were having a research meeting and it dawned on me as I was listening to my colleagues that I had designed all of our original strategies for me. <laughs> I, 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 I am a risk seeking, I love risk. So I, you know, had a mental block there. Like, why wouldn't you want something that is going to do over 10 or 20 years, a thousand basis points better than the benchmark? Of course you would want that. That's the rational choice. Well, that was, uh, you know, I wrote a paper, Mistakes Were Made and Yes by Me. I can add that one to the list mm -hmm. because as the fiduciary who is designing strategies, and you guys are in the same boat, what we really have to find are strategies that do better than the market over long periods of time, but that investors can actually stick with, okay? So that takes a lot of really interesting strategies, I mean, to people like us, off the table, because they do incredibly well if you, you know, are Rip Van Winkle and you don't look at the portfolio for 10 years, you'll wake up really happy. But that isn't the way human beings are. We, we, some people look at their portfolios daily, hourly. It's, it's horrible and toxic to your returns. Um, lots of academic studies back this up and, and yet human nature, right? You're never ever gonna overcome human nature. I say that's the last sustainable edge arbitraging human nature. So in, 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 for a quantitative factor investor, what we have to strive for are portfolios that take maximum advantage of the uh, anomalies in the factors, but also keep a keen eye on downside variability. In other words, uh, everybody, right? Don't look at standard deviation of return, right? Because that includes up and down. When, when stocks are going up, you want the highest standard deviation you can have, right? It's only when stocks are going down that people freak out. And so you can look at the downside risk. You can look at all of those things. How often, what was its biggest maximum drawdown? All of those became much more important to us as we evolved our strategies. And so I think what you see us offering today are portfolios that very much take that into consideration. These are portfolios where we're still trying to do the best in generating alpha, but in a manner that doesn't create, you know, a wild, wild ride that, that people simply can't hold on, right? And, and so we're taking our understanding of human nature into account and, and looking for those sweet spots where 
we're, we're paying attention to financial strength. We're paying attention to quality. We're paying attention to all of those things and excluding companies that might have a great potential upside, but also are so volatile that when that bad volatility hits, and note, I say when, not if, you're deluding yourself if you think you're not going to have drawdowns. Everybody has drawdowns. And so we, the, the advantage to being a systematic investor is we can look at how bad they were. Um, and, and sometimes they're very, very bad. What we try to do now is, is marry the best alpha that we can find to a drawdown that we feel that our average client and I hate that word because we don't have an average client, right? Um, everyone's different. Everyone's interpretation of risk is different. Um, all of those things need to be taken into account. But in the absence of, of you know, doing something specifically for Jack and for Justin and for Jim, uh, which we're getting closer to being able to do, but that's another story, um, you, you want to say, okay, can, can somebody with a normal reaction to uh, a market loss uh, stay and stick with it. And what we're finding is that yes, as we've evolved our portfolio strategies, um, taking the, uh, the risk that they face in the market uh, into account is part of the process. And um, you know, uh, when I first did all, all of our original strategies, I was in my early 30s and, and loved risk. Um, and then I had the enlightening awakening that most people don't love it. Most people hate risk. And that's why you see, unfortunately, um, the, uh, you know, the risk aversion anomaly where, where they hate risk so much that they need a lot more upside than downside. And markets don't work that way. Um, so the answer is, you're absolutely right. You need to take it. Anyone who's doing uh, factor investing or designing uh, portfolios, whether you're doing it for yourself, whether you're doing it for others, you, you've got to take that downside seriously because if you think that you can take a portfolio that's down 60% when the market is down 40%, maybe very few people can do that. I know a couple, but most people can't. And, and so you need to acknowledge that and you need to design a portfolio where that doesn't happen. That's one of the things that I think, you know, is unique about, well, you know, in terms of your evolution or your strategies, you are constantly looking to improve them. So like, for instance, like in your first version of what works on wall street, obviously you use price to sales as the key valuation metric value metric. And over time, that's evolved to more of a value composite type of approach. So can you just talk through the process that you go through as a firm? And, you know, obviously, you had strategies that use price to sales, and you migrated to the value composite. So how you guys approach introducing new factors or changing those factors or evolving your quantitative investment strategies over time, and how that actually works through the portfolio construction processes? You know, as sure. best you can. Sure, of course. Um, we're always learning. We're always thinking and, and watching and, and uh, trying to come up with new ways to measure various outcomes, right? 
So let's use price to sales and value composite. Um, so originally, and that's also in my paper, mistakes were made and yes by me, um, I, I naively said, well, gosh, uh, through 1993, I think is where the original what works data ended, uh, price to sales just kills everything else. Well, had I even thought about it for a second, I would have said, well, wait a minute. Yeah, for the period ending 1993, that's true, but we need to base rate these things. We need to look at portfolios that start in January and February and March and April. And of course, you saw that in the next editions of What Works. And when we do that, right, we see that it's sensitive, very sensitive to when you start, right? So one, one start date will have price to sales as the king, another will have EBITDA to enterprise value, uh, yet another will have price to earnings, et cetera. That's where we got the idea for, hey, why don't we put them all together and see if that works better? We found that it worked a lot better uh, for both logical reasons. You know, we're covering all parts of the balance sheet now, whereas price to sales was just looking at revenues got you into low margin businesses often, right? Um, where price to sales were very low. Now we cover the entire balance sheet and um, uh, the efficacy of the composite is, is better than any of the single value ratios um, uh, alone. But I think that the, the process is we understand we don't know everything, right? There, there, there is not, we, we can't go, okay, we're done. We've learned everything there is to know about investing, and and now uh, we're just going to let it ride. That's very foolish because you, what you're saying is that you're smarter than every other human being on the planet, and that just ain't so. And so, one of the things when you're looking at managers, especially systematic managers, what you should look for is the size of their research graveyard. What's that mean? It means everything that they looked at but didn't end up using, okay? Um, we've got a huge graveyard, right? And there's several mausoleums in there. Uh, Price to Book has its own mausoleum, for example. Um, and, and so the idea that you're ever done finding ways to evolve a strategy, I think is, is wrong. I think that what we spend all of our time doing is making sure the data is, I mean, a lot of what we do also, just a brief digression, is really boring, right? So we do an enormous amount of data scrubbing. What's that mean? It means how accurate is the data that we're actually using? A lot of people don't just take it as given that, you know, if it's coming from this service or that service, the data is fine. Sorry, that's very, very wrong. So we do multiple data scrubs. We compare multiple numbers across vendors, et cetera, to make sure that we're getting very clean data. First off, very dull, very workmanlike, but it makes a big, big difference. But then you also have got to start thinking about things like, well, price to book, good example. Um, you know, price to book has this great illustrious history, um, but there, all of a sudden, it's really something that worked very well for industrial style companies, but our companies today, most of the value that they have is in brand, is in intangibles, right? So 
would price to book be the best way to price Nike? I don't think so. And we have, uh, as shouldn't surprise you, we have a paper on that and a podcast. Um, so we are continually updating our observations, our learning, and, you know, has anything changed to the point where you need to take a hard look? Sometimes things do change, right? Uh, an antiquated uh, value ratio price to book worked great for certain types of companies, works a lot less well for companies that have a lot of intangibles and a lot of value tied to brand, Apple, another example. Um, so the, what you'll see if you, if you look at, and if you're a real nerd, we'll show it to you. <laughs> we have a timeline for our various strategies, right? And, and we show how they evolve. What you won't see is you won't see us saying, oh, systematic uh, investing doesn't work. Uh, what you won't see us saying is, pay no attention to valuation. You can buy whatever you want to buy because that, those are foundational beliefs, right? And they're beliefs because they are empirically supported. It's not like, you know, I'm sitting here and thinking, hey, I've got this really good idea that um, you, you, you should buy a stock uh, where you can buy a dollar's worth of earnings for a quarter, right? All of our findings are empirically supported over long periods of time and many different market environments. So our foundational beliefs don't change. The way we get to the names that we put into our portfolios changes, but it evolves. You're not going to see us making a lot of changes, um, you know, every year. Uh, to, to get a change put into our production uh, portfolio selection process is very arduous. I mean, if you had Chris Meredith on here and he knew I wasn't ever going to be able to listen to it, you might get an earful. Uh, because we are very, very stringent, and I have final say in, at OSAM as to whether something gets put into production or not. And, and so you will never see us make a change because of a recent market event, right? We had a um, consultant come in after the financial crisis um, uh, who worked for a big bank that no longer exists, uh, but anyway... Um, he, he covered uh, quants and systematic investors specifically. And he told us that during the great financial crisis, more than 60% of quants overrode their models. To me, that is a death sentence. If you are a quant and you emotionally override your model, you have negated all of your previous track record, right? Because it's proving that you too are emotional, just like the guys you're uh, saying are doing it the wrong way. So our process is highly regimented. It has lots of research always going on. You very rarely see any really exciting change, right? I mean, uh, that is a big difference. Moving from single value uh, factors to composites and moving from single momentum factors to composites, that was big. Um, and I think obviously has demonstrated that's a, been a great change. But look, always, you, I, I always joke, beginner's mind. You've got to approach everything with beginner's mind. The worst thing that can happen to you is for you to think, I know everything. That's the death of your brain, in my opinion. And 
and you know that's dogma and we see it in politics today but we see it in a lot of other places too we see investment dogmas we see uh dogma dogma everywhere and and dogma is bad because what it what it means to me at least is you think you found the truth and you're not going to search anymore believe me you you haven't found the truth you're getting closer to the truth hopefully but you haven't found it you got to keep searching and that's why You'll never see us emotionally. In fact, that's one of the things I'm most proud of, right? So I started managing money uh, for others in the mid-90s. And you know every kind of crisis we faced. Uh, and I've never overridden a model, ever. And, and I believe because if I did that, that's game over. I'm, no one could trust me ever again. And so, you know, so I guess if I have a dogma, <laughs> it is that. That's the one rule you can't violate, right? Other than that, always keep your eye open for new ways of thinking about things, of measuring things, of all of those things, and just keep learning. So does this, uh, this long-term focus mean you won't be doing research into the bankruptcy factor after what's been going on recently? <laughs> 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 you know, actually, it's really funny that you bring that up, Jack, because we have research on bankruptcies, um, and it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can imagine. It's funny because as quants, we're always trying to use these negative screens to eliminate potential bankruptcies, but now we have people investing in actual bankruptcies. <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, I, I, look, I, I, I pride myself on being a probabilistic thinker as opposed to a deterministic one. Um, so I'll never say always or never, um, but my guess is the chances are very high that folks who are investing in bankrupt companies are going to regret it. Um, but hopefully they learn something from that, right? Um, I, look, I, I, the, the worst thing that ever happened to me was I got interested in markets very young and... Huh, my first several trades were home runs. And oh my God, if you want to put a curse on somebody, curse them with getting their first moves in the market absolutely right. Because you're going to marry youthful ignorance and arrogance with, oh my God, I am the smartest guy in the world. And then of course, the tuition that the market is going to extract from you is much, much higher. You're going to learn your lesson that you're not. Um, and that's part of the process, right? So I hope, I hope that investors who are, I think foolishly, putting their money into bankrupt companies right now, learn a lesson from that, but don't learn the wrong one, right? Don't say, oh, that's the market. That's another big little bugaboo of mine. You can pretty much make reasonably good forecasts for someone's success or failure by watching whether they take ownership for their failures themselves or blame others or blame events. If you blame others and blame events, I got to tell you going forward, it, your prospects for succeeding are pretty low. If you, on the other hand, say, I own it. I take, you know, I, I take full responsibility for this. What can I learn from this? right? If you treat that failure as not a failure, but a learning opportunity, that's how you build. And that's how you become a success over time. And so I certainly hope 
that these young investors today, uh, I hope there's a lot of learners in that group because if they learn that the market over long periods of time is going to be the best way that they can uh, save and in invest for their futures, that's a win in my book. Uh, the ones who learn the wrong lesson and say it was that person's fault or that event's fault or that company's fault and you know I'm going to wag my finger at them and never do this again, well, that's not the right lesson. Yeah, speaking of learning, I wanted to switch gears for the last couple of questions, and I wanted to ask you about parenting. Um, you know, you were nice enough to invite me to your office for lunch last year, and you know, one of the things that struck me about the conversation is I don't think we talked about investing or factor investing at all. Right. I think, you know, I think pretty much we covered all the other topics the whole time, and this was one of the most interesting topics for me. And you know, it, it strikes me that you know you have three children, and I, one is a CEO of an asset management firm, one I believe is a stand-up comedian, and one I believe is a children's book author. And Correct. so clearly you haven't guided your kids in any way. And, you know, Patrick talked, when you had him on your podcast, you talked about how you had the bookshelf and, you know, you always would just point him there whenever he needed anything. And so yeah. I'm wondering, you know, I have a one-year-old and a five-year-old, and so I can obviously use all the help I can get right now. <laughs> so I wanted to just ask you if you had any tips based on your experience in parenting that you might give me. Sure, of course. Actually, I do. Um, I was just talking about this with another young dad um, uh, just a few days ago. Um, so my wife and I were very lucky in all sorts of respects, but we got married very young. We were 22. And so we decided, well, okay, we're crazy. We got married when we were 22. Let's have kids young. So Patrick was born when we were 24. And um, my wife and I talked at great length about, okay, so we're going to be parents what, what kind of parenting style should we use? What, what should we embrace? And through our conversation, it became very clear to both of us that what was most important for us was as best as we could affect our kids, because that's something else that is another conversation. They're, they're affected by lots of folks other than you. Uh, but our goal was that at the end of the day, they were great adults, okay? So that sounds, you know, almost trite, right? But if you think about that, if you make that your baseline, my goal is to raise great adults. That precludes you from all sorts of uh, behaviors that without that goal, you would probably engage in. So you wanna raise great adults? You never say to that child, because I said so, because I'm big and you're little, because you're living in my house. That's not going to raise a great adult. That's going to raise somebody who kind of uh, is uh, very conformist and doesn't ask questions. And I found the greatest gift in life is the ability to always say, why, why, why? And so you, you can't do things that come naturally to us as human beings, right? Um, and, you know, when you get frustrated, so I have two grandkids now, Patrick's kids, who are six and, and four, adore them. They're over here all the time. And, and I, it's, it's great seeing Patrick and Lauren, his wife, kind of embracing that same idea, that their, their goal is to raise great adults. When you do that, it precludes you from doing all sorts of behaviors that I think are bad. Again, I'm not you know, Jack, you're going to raise your kids the way you're going to raise your kids. But if you think about it and, and look at 
okay, so who succeeds and who fails? People succeed who are curious, who are not afraid to ask questions, and who continue to search for other questions as things come up, right? So, and, and are not just like, as when I was on Patrick's podcast, I pointed him to the bookshelf, and it's true, I did. This is pre-Google, right? I, I guess I'd point him to Google now. But um, what, it, what it engendered, I think, I think if my three kids were sitting here and you asked them, it, I think, engendered a real deep curiosity and a voracious um, desire to learn and know things. And so you're absolutely right when you mentioned there are three occupations. I never once suggested to any of my children, including Patrick, that they should be interested in what I did, um, investment management, finance, ever. Because I grew up in a family that had a big family company and it was in the oil business. And boy, my uncle, he really wanted me to be in the oil business. <laughs> and he kind of took it as a personal affront that I was more interested in the stock market. And I loved him and he me, spent a lot of time with him. And, and finally we were out at dinner and he was making yet a pitch yet again for why I needed to come and work for the company, the family company. And I finally looked at him and I said, Uncle John, I love you. And I love the fact that you love oil. I don't love oil. I love the stock market. If I could be really helpful to you in that, I would love to do it. And he got a big smile on his face finally. And he's like, okay, you stuck with it. He goes, I was just going to keep chipping at you and keep punching you until I figured out, nope, he's just not going to give in to me, right? So that was one of the lessons I learned was raise your children in, so that they can pursue their own uh, passions, pursue their own desires and knowledge, and, and you'll get a mixed bag, right? So Patrick didn't read what, well, I wonder if he's ever read all of my books. I doubt it. <laughs> I, I le and let's be clear here. I read his book, um, but I'm joking, obviously. Uh, but he became interested later in life. And that was wholly on his own. It was not because I wanted him in, in a finance. It was not because I suggested that that be a good idea for him. That was Patrick, right? And what you see is, uh, with Patrick now is that's Patrick. That isn't Jim, that's Patrick. And he, I'm immensely proud of him, right? And I love working with him. But that's because he invested all of his life growing up in learning and doing all of those things. I'm equally proud of my middle daughter, Kate, who's got uh, a, uh, a great uh, middle grade fiction book out right now. Um, and my daughter, Lael, who is a stand-up comedian. Um, you know, that's a, that's a, boy, you, you, you want a, a really scary profession, stand up comedian. I mean, because we who invest people, people's money, you know, we're judged every day, right? How do we do today? Wrong way to measure, but there it is. Um, stand up comedian. Like I've set my daughter, Lael's actually here. Um, and she's visiting, uh, for a while. Uh, but I've said to her, you know, I've made probably by this time, thousands of speeches to huge audiences. And I would be petrified trying to do even five minutes to make people laugh. I mean, that is brave. <laughs> and she's hysterical. So 
I, I, I love that my kids have all pursued their own passions. And I think that they got there by just us living by that real simple rule, a very simple guideline, which precluded all sorts of behaviors and required others, right? So don't just say, uh, you know, dad, what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Always answer African or European. <laughs> so that they're going to look it up, right? Um, and, and then let, listen to your children. Again, sounds really trite, but when, when our kids wanted to do something or not do something, it wasn't enough for them to come in and say, daddy, mommy, I want X, right? Um, I'll use Patrick as an example. So Patrick played chess as uh, a youth. I always joke that he was an incredible, and he really was an incredible chess player. And then puberty hit, and then you know all bets are off. The girls, not chess. Um, but he also was taking karate when he was a kid, and he came to me one day and said, "Dad, yeah, um, I think I, I think I don't want to take karate anymore." Really? Why? Because I don't want to. And I'm like, that's not a good, that's not a good reason. So I'm, I'm fully willing to listen to you. And when you can come in and tell me in a reasonable manner the points why you don't want to do this anymore, I'm willing to listen. And he got upset. He was six or seven. <laughs> so, of course. But he came back after thinking about it. And he had a really great argument. I don't remember the specifics of it now, but he had a cogent, reasoned argument for why he wanted to stop. And I was like, okay, you're done. And so when, when, you, when you encourage that in your kids, Jack and, and Justin, it, it makes them more robust, right? It makes them more anti-fragile, if you will, um, because at the end of the day, if, if you are forced to you know, come up with great reasons for why you want to do something, guess what you do? You spend a lot of time thinking about that. And you spend a lot of time kind of going through the pros and cons. And, and you know, I think that that finds better adults. So that, and, and, and be very, uh, my last thing, uh, Jack, would be be incredibly patient. <laughs> because you know and and remember what you did yeah. <laughs> now i was a kid of the 70s so what i did <laughs> <don't worry>. <laughs> it's, it's like we were at dinner with friends and they were the same age as we are and i'm just turned 60 and my wife's turning 60 and uh and this is years ago and they were you know going on and on but the, our kids today when when patrick was a teenager and i looked at my friend and i went um do you remember when you were 17? And he looks at me and he goes, well, that's a different, you know, that, and I went, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, we're human beings, right? Let us, let us, uh, we got to be patient. Everyone makes a lot of mistakes, especially if you're requiring them to make all these arguments and find out these things on their own. So patience. By the way, Jim, um, I think you might know this, but I bought Kate's book for one of my daughters. And, she, and she, she loved the book. And the coolest thing about that, if you remember, is once she was done it, I took a picture of her holding the book I, and I posted it on Twitter. I do and then remember. Kate responded. And if you ever want to see like a 10-year-old just glow, like, because, you know, for her to get a response from an author of an actual book yeah. is just, it, it, was, it was really awesome. It was a really memorable 
night well, and, and just in terms of reading the book, yeah, it was great. And, and let me tell you, Justin, it was also memorable for Kate. She loves talking to fans who've read her book. Um, and, you know, she puts a lot of thought and energy into making these really great stories. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm, I'm biased, right? <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I, I read the book before it was published and I, the most honest feedback I could give Kate was, Kate, I'm 57 years old, a man, and I thought that this was a really interesting story and it kept me going right until the end. And if, you, if that's the case, man, you're gonna lock up those kids. And so nice. far it's been going really well. Yeah, that's good. Um, just in t before we wrap up, the last question we wanted to just ask you is about sort of how, you know, investment management firms like yours, how they may look at this sort of work from home, remote work thing that the pandemic has obviously put many companies, I, th I think you guys are probably almost all remote now and how, how that's been, I mean, some of the struggles that maybe you faced with doing it or not, and then just, you know, how you think it may change sort of workplace habits and, you know, this remote work thing going forward, if you think that's going to be a trend that's going to continue or which is what your, what your thoughts are. Sure. So uh, the first thing I would note is that um, I am lucky to be in an industry that is uniquely able to take advantage of letting people work from home. Uh, because essentially, I joke that, you know, we're symbol manipulators, right? <laughs> we, everything we do is determining value and investing in things, but you can do that all from anywhere. I used to joke, you know, as long as I've got one of these with me, and you probably can't see it because of the, here, here we go. Um, yeah, this is fake back here, of course, too. Um, and and uh, so because of that, I've always been like a massive early adopter to technology. I love technology. I was one of the first people online. I bought the first Mac. I bought the first iPhone. I had phones back when, you know, you could still clone the number by just having one of those radio things. But so when we started OSAM, I said to the president of my firm, Chris Loveless, because it was 07 when we started it, and we're going into 08, I said, look, we're probably gonna have to spend most of this time just keeping people calm and not, you know, don't jump out the window. So I want the best technology we can have. And so the first three years, Chris took that and ran with it. And so our technology was fabulous. And again, as part of the regulatory system that oversees us, you have to have a backup plan, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have disaster recovery. And that used to be another office, right? Uh, located elsewhere on a different power grid. Um, but as tech became cheaper and cheaper, uh, we elected to say, let's just duplicate everyone's workspace in their home. So my head trader, uh, she has her four screens um, she has a duplication of her trading environment at our physical office in her home. Same with all my portfolio managers, my portfolio researchers, everyone, our salespeople. So they can all do everything that they would do at the office from their home. Um, I've also been a big advocate for a long time before crisis of, look, I'm, I'm not running a kindergarten here. Um, I, I, I'm not going to take attendance. I hire adults 
who I expect are going to do their job. And if adult A is going to do his or her job better from home or from somewhere else, fine. Um, and, and so when this crisis happened, A, we already had everyone at the firm set up so that they could duplicate everything they did in the office from their homes. B, we have kept our offices here in Connecticut closed um, and probably will keep them closed through the end of summer. But one thing that we have already said is if, if any of our employees want to continue to work from home, that's fine with us. And so I think that certain um, industries like our own, uh, like technology certainly, um, are going to be much more, what you're going to see is an acceleration of a trend that already was happening. And, and I think that um, for the most part, that's a really good thing. Um, if people get more, are mo more productive at home, uh, great. Now I do have some worries, right? One of the things that we found is some of my employees, my colleagues, are working more from home than they did when at the office because, you know, we're all mental creatures, right? And, and office time was work and home time was home and there was a big distinction there. And, and now we've actually had to say to people, no, you take two days off, shut the computer, you know, play with your kids, talk to your wife um, or husband. Um, so, so that's a challenge. I think that if you have people who are the managers pointing that out, that that can be managed. Um, the thing that I'm, I'm still wondering about is I, I certainly hope that when the crisis um, uh, dissipates and we can return to some normalcy um, in, in our seeing each other. One of the things that I don't think you can quantify, coming from a quant, uh, is, is things that happened that weren't planned. And by that I mean, I've had a lot of experiences where I'm sitting with a colleague at lunch and we're talking about different things. And then all of a sudden one of us says, hey, did you ever think that maybe we should test, you know, X? And it wasn't in the work plan. It wasn't in the, you know, and, and it was just that spur of the moment conversation between two colleagues that, that uh, highlighted and upgraded an idea and a thought. And, and I think that that is still going to be something that is needs in person, right? So, you know, if I had my perfect world, I would say that, you know, teams could get together physically at least twice a month. And, and, and even if it's just for uh, lunch and conversation and, uh, you know, sort of seeing how things are going, just because it's those unplanned um, exchanges where you see a lot, it's the old joke about the apple hitting Newton on his head, right, when he's sitting under the tree. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> and then, of course, we got uh, Newtonian physics. So a lot happens that isn't planned. And some of it's bad, uh, but a lot of it's good. So I think that sort of the perfect mix for me would be um, getting together. I think a lot of things need to be in person. So 
if if I was going to negotiate with you guys for something, right? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to buy your company or whatever. Um, boy, that needs to be in person because we we you, want uh, twenty million dollars. By the way, pass, pass. Now you just proved me that I'm a liar. Uh, I pass. That's that's all we need. Uh, so, but the point is that. If you study human behavior as long as I have, it's like a long time ago, people would come to me and they'd say, well, you know, I want to be in asset management. What should I study? Should I major in finance? And I went, no, you know, study uh, evolutionary psychology and biology and understand human beings. You can, you'll be able to figure out the math part. Uh, mostly if the math is higher than arithmetic, it's, you're pretty much guaranteed to lose your money anyway. Right. So, but there are certain things that need in person because we are complicated creatures, right? We're quantum beings living in a Newtonian world. And, and so there's all sorts of micro expressions. There's breathing patterns. There's body language that, that you see when we're sitting opposite each other uh, in, at lunch, for example, uh, that you don't see through screens. And the other thing that I would say about screens is that people seem, uh, many people, not everyone, obviously, but many people seem to remove some governors when they're saying something through a screen that they wouldn't say in person, right? And a lot of that leads to bad things. Right. People say things that in a more nuanced situation, they certainly wouldn't say. If I was sitting, if you guys were sitting on either side of me, I probably would say everything I've said, but if something controversial came up um, and you had a very you know, serious opinion, I'm not gonna call you an idiot or moron, you know? And, and so sometimes, I always believe that people with great ideas argue the ideas. People without great ideas label and call names. Right, because you 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 got it. If you got all the facts on your side, guess what you're going to argue? You're going to argue the facts. If you don't, you're going to call names. You're going to label. Um, you're going to do all that, and that's going to un, 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 reveal a weak argument because you would have made a better argument if you had it. But so, I definitely think that we will see a uh, a boost to work from home. I don't think it will take off entirely. That's again, recency bias. Everyone's doing it now, so they mm. think that everyone's gonna continue doing it. Look, human beings, we're gregarious beasts. Uh, I have a favorite author who calls us domesticated primates. And, and you know, we kind of are. And, but part of that is people. We, unless you are an odd type person, you wanna be around other people. You want to share with family, with friends, with all of that, colleagues. And so I think that with, with luck, um, industries that can uh, reach a nice balance, like our industry, will. Um, and and that, that's great. I think that, you know, it's not so great for people who are, like, say, pure um, uh, based just entirely on work product because suddenly a lot of your competition now is anyone who can hook up to the internet, 
right? And, and you don't have to have the ability to move to San Francisco if you want to work in tech or move to New York if you want to work in finance. Um, and that precluded a lot of people, right? Um, if, if this trend just does accelerate, you're, you're, the competition is going to get a lot uh, tougher because you're going to be competing with people who, you know, they're super bright and they don't want to live in New York, but now they have the opportunity to work for a world-class company. It'll be interesting. Jim, listen, you have been super generous with your time with us today. This is a talk we've wanted to do for a long, long time. And um, we're you know, very happy that you're able to spend this time with us and continue to educate and, and share your knowledge and wisdom. If people want to learn more about um, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management or, or you on Twitter and your research, where should they go? So our website is OSAM, Oscar, Sam, Adam, Mary. Um, you can follow both Patrick and, and uh, I on Twitter, or me, uh, objective case, my mother is uh, still in my brain. Um, uh, I'm at JP O'Shaughnessy. Um, he's uh, at Pat Patrick underscore O'Shag. Um, and uh, you can follow a lot of my colleagues there as well. Uh, OSAM Research is also on Twitter. Uh, but if you're looking for, you know, kind of the meaty stuff, I would go to osam.com. We have an entire research section. If uh, you're a, a super nerd and you love that kind of stuff, I think there's a lot of uh, stuff you're going to find very interesting there. Um, and um, you can also call us up. The number is right on our website. Great. Well, thank you, Jim. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. You guys are always thank fun to talk to. Thank you, Jim. All right. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.